back and uh, let's pray. And uh, what we're going to do is uh, remind, I'm going to remind you of what we talked about last week and then uh, try to be faithful to both sides in the sense I'm going to give you three theories that try to overcome that cosmological argument that I gave you last week. And we'll see how well they do. And then we're going to get into something tonight called the teleological argument, which is known as the argument from design. As we look at the design of the world, the design of the universe, it becomes um, unthinkable that there wasn't a designer uh, behind it all. So uh, we'll take a look at that tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for this church, Lord, that stands here uh, to honor your son and to, to bring glory to his name. And and so tonight, Lord, we pray that that would happen uh, as we talk about your creation, uh, the fingerprints that you left uh, for us to uh, discover. So uh, be honored tonight, we pray. In the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so quick recap of last week. We talked about the cosmological argument, which, um, as I stated, you know, we, we get these premises, which are these... Um, um, the, the things that have to be proven. And the first premise of the cosmological argument was simply that everything that has a beginning has a cause. Okay, so everything has a beginning has a cause. Now we have to prove that, and there's something called the law of causality that says the same thing. It's an actual physics law. Uh, all science uses the law of causality all the time. It's a law of cause and effect. So that law simply says that, yes, everything that had a beginning had a cause. Nothing begins for no reason whatsoever. Okay, there's always a cause for the beginnings. So premise one is proven through that law. Premise two was, well, if everything had a beginning and a cause, the second premise was that the universe had a beginning. Okay, so that has to be proven, though. You can't just say it. you got to prove the universe had a beginning. And if we can prove the universe had a beginning, then it would follow that the universe had a cause. Then we put the two premises together, prove them both. That would show us that the universe had a cause. So the second premise that the universe had a beginning, we proved through an acronym I gave you. Okay, this might be a little disappointing, but I'll try it. Anybody remember the acronym? Search. Wow. It doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> Good for you guys. All right. All right. I'm going to tell my 17-year-olds tomorrow that the adult group got it like, right away. That's great. All right. Surge. Yes. Anybody want to tell me what the S was for? All right, I pushed it a little too far. Second law of thermodynamics, followed by our U, which is the universe is expanding, followed by our R, which is the radiation background from the Big Bang that we discovered, followed by our G, which is the galaxy seeds that form from that radiation background, followed by our E, which is Einstein's theory of general relativity. Those are five lines of observable science that uh, all declare individually and certainly as a group that the universe had a beginning. So our two premises are proven, which means our conclusion is true that the universe had a cause. Now, why is it so important to go all through all of this just to say the universe had a cause? Because the law of cause and effect says that the cause has to be greater than the effect. So now we have this universe that's an effect, and we need a cause that's greater than it. So just like a computer can't be created by something inside the computer, it's got to be something outside the computer that creates the computer. Same with this universe. So we need something outside of the time and the space and the matter of the universe that can actually act upon the universe to create it. But it's even more than that. What's necessary for this cause of the universe, God bless you, is that because there's intelligence in the universe, 
The law of cause and effect says the cause of that intelligence has to be a greater than the effect of the intelligence. So we need a greater intelligence than our own to create the intelligence that we have. Now think of the alternative the atheist is stuck with, that the intelligence in our world has to come from non-intelligence. Because what intelligence do they have to create the intelligence? So they have to believe that intelligence can come from non-intelligence. They have to believe that personhood, because we have personhood, came from non-personhood. We've never seen that happen. And the person had the personhood that created has to be greater than our personhood. And he happens to have a Trinitarian personhood. Personhood of the Father, the personhood of the Son, the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And it has and because there's life in this world, life had to create it, because life can't come from non-life. So it has to be a greater life than ours that created our life. And this is all determined by the laws of physics, the law of cause and effect. This isn't religious talk. This is strictly science talk that's demanding something exactly like our God exist before this universe, act upon it, and create it. Scientifically necessary. That's why St. Thomas Aquinas called God a necessary being. You can't do the science without there being something with the description of God causing it all. Okay. So we did that last week, and then I said I was going to present these three theories that have come up to try to either still make the universe eternal or overcome the necessity of God in the creation of the universe. The first is called the cosmic rebound theory. Okay? So the cosmic rebound theory, the long and the short of it is this. It says, okay, so we had this big bang and the universe is indeed expanding, but they believe at some point gravity will catch on to the galaxies and pull it all back together into a great cosmic crunch. And then that cosmic crunch will become another point of singularity, which will then explode again and cause an expanding universe like we have now. And that will happen over and over again for all eternity. So it's just this huge cosmic rebound. It's an infinite amount of big bangs that are happening. We're just in one of those expanding universe big bangs right now. Okay, so it goes with the multiverse theory. So now, what are the problems that we have with this theory? Well, with all of these proposed theories, the number one problem is that the laser beam doesn't show up on the screen. It's working, but it doesn't show up up there. All right. So anyways, number one problem is that, what was it? The second to the last point there, there's no evidence for it. It's not a bit of evidence to believe it. In fact, there's evidence against it. And the evidence against it comes from the COBE satellite that I mentioned last week, the Cosmic Background Explorer satellite that NASA sent up to explore the cosmic background. And that satellite determined that the universe is expanding at a rate that's actually increasing and will never, ever decrease. So that takes away, that, that now we have, uh, you know, the satellite saying there'll never be a cosmic crunch. It'll never happen. Okay. Imagine rooting for a cosmic crunch that'll end all life rather than saying there's God. <laughs> it's just remarkable to me. Hold off on your God theory. Maybe we're all going to have to be in this cosmic crunch. Okay. Right. No evidence. Listen, it also would require uh, require an infinite amount of big bangs. Now, if you remember, I talked about the infinite a little bit last week, and I said you can't have an infinite amount of actual things. It's not possible. You can only have an infinite amount of theoretical things like numbers. Okay, but you can't have, like you have a number line between zero and one, you have an infinite amount of points there, okay? But if that's a bookshelf, you can't have an infinite amount of books on it, right? You can't have an infinite amount of actual things because the infinity is not a number and we can't treat it as a number. And the proof that it's not a number is 
uh, if you take infinity minus one, it's still infinity. If you take infinity divided by two, it's still infinity. If you take infinity times two, it's still infinity. That's not, those aren't mathematical equations that work. You can't say x minus one equals x. But you plug in infinity, that's what's happening there. So infinity doesn't function as a number. It's not a number. You can't count to it, right? So it's just a theoretical idea of, the, of an infinite set of something. So you only can have, you only talk about infinite things in a theoretical way, not in an actual way. That'll be important when I get to the fine-tuning argument a little later, too. All right, so you can't have an infinite amount of Big Bangs. And even if you could have an infinite amount of Big Bangs, well, you can't have an infinite amount of Big Bangs. But even if you could, our S of surge, our second law of thermodynamics, that says all systems lose usable energy, certainly these constant Big Bangs would constantly be losing usable energy, so you can't have an infinite amount of them. They would run out of energy already. can't have an infinite amount of these Big Bangs in the past there'd be no energy left in that finite system of losing usable energy to still have big bangs anymore. Okay, so it just doesn't work. All right, so that's the slide that talks about the, the expanding rate of the universe. Is that a speed that's actually increasing? It'll never crunch on itself, says Charles Bennett of NASA. All right. Um, Here's where it says it contradicts the second law of thermodynamics. I went ahead of myself four or five slides, just explained it to you. That's what all that's talking about there. And there's the, you can't have an infinite amount of big bangs. And even if there were a finite number of big bangs, okay, let's, what if they say we're not talking about an infinite amount, we're just talking about billions of them. Well, if it's not an infinite amount, that means there was a first one, and that first one would have the same problems that they're encountering with explaining this one. So all it's doing is moving the problem to a different Big Bang. That that uh, doesn't work out for them. All right, clear enough. Before I move on to the next one. All right. So this uh, second theory is called imaginary time, and here's how simple this one is. Okay, when when Stephen Hawking was presented with the impossibility of something coming out of nothing, for no reason by nothing, he was asked how could he believe something like that, and his answer was this. He said, in real time, the universe had a beginning, but maybe there's imaginary time. That's the whole theory right there. <laughs> Stephen Hawking says, maybe there's imaginary time. Now, is that like once upon a time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's fairy tale. Yes. Yeah. So, so because he's Stephen Hawking, people still talk about it. Now, if I just said, hey, maybe there's imaginary time, everybody laugh and then never be mentioned again. Right. But maybe there's imaginary. Now you fill in the blank. You can put whatever you want in that blank because it's imaginary. Right. So there's really nothing to it. You just have to mention maybe there's imaginary time. All right. The third and final one's called the uncertainty principle. This one, as I summarize it, you can read along as I summarize it. It cites Heisenberg's uncertainty principle regarding subatomic particles. Simply says this. As they look at an atom and they see the electron rings around the atom, and the electrons move unpredictably. They don't know why these electrons move. They don't know where they're going to move to. They don't know, they don't know what's going on with the movement of these electrons. So they'll state, well, whatever's going on there maybe has something to do with the beginning of the universe. Okay? So if we can figure that out, maybe we'd have that answer. Because we're uncertain on this, well, we're uncertain on that. But we might get an answer on this observable phenomenon that explains that phenomenon that we can't observe because it was the Big Bang and we can't obviously observe that. Well, the problem with that theory is this. They're giving us, they're proposing a problem that has to do with the laws of motion. We don't know how these things are moving. 
And they're applying the problem with the law of motion here to the law of causality there. That's not a law of motion problem. It's a law of causality problem. They're unrelated. Okay? It's like saying, you know, I don't know why I don't like cherry pie, so let me eat this apple and see if that gives me any indication of why. No. They're unrelated. Okay? Yeah. When you have a cause, then wouldn't it start something in motion? A cause will start something, yeah. But what do you mean? You said they have nothing to do with each other. They the cause start. They're not, they're not wondering the... They're not wondering what's causing this movement. They're wondering why can't we predict the movement of these things? Yeah, we don't know. Because, quite frankly, the cause is more than likely the fact that they're putting these atoms under glass, under microscopes, is probably causing the movement of the electrons. It's just like they say, we don't really know how bees behave inside of beehives because the only time we can get a, a look inside a beehive, we're agitating the bees. So we don't know if that's how they typically operate or it's because they're agitated or whatever. It's the same with the electron. Okay, we're agitating it to study it, so maybe we're causing the movement as far as we know. You know, so so it's so it's kind of unrelated stuff. All right. So they're confusing causality with predictability. So it's unrelated problems that, that they're trying to mask as the same problem. All right. There it says we must stir them up to observe them. It's just like the beekeeper putting a set in the beehive. Well, they behave that way because you're bothering them right now. All right, so the three attempts to avoid God. Uh, we've learned that no atheistic theory can refute either premise of the cosmological argument. The universe had a beginning, therefore it has to have a cause. Now this had Robert Jastrow. I don't know if I introduced him to you last week or not. But Robert Jastrow is this agnostic astronomer and he wrote a book called God and the Astronomers. And he was basically just giving this very unbiased um, conclusions to all the evidence. Okay, And so I want to give you a couple of his quotes uh, at the end of his book, um, God and the Astronomers. <clears throat> so in answering the question, why don't the scientists go where the evidence leads them? It's obviously leading them towards acknowledging God. So why don't they go there? Robert Jastrow answers that by saying, theologians are generally delighted with the proof that the universe had a beginning. That's the third word of our whole Bible, correct? Now scientifically proven to be true. Theologians are generally delighted with the proof that the universe had a beginning, but astronomers are curiously upset. Their reactions provide an interesting demonstration of the response of the scientific mind, which is supposedly a very objective mind, when evidence uncovered by science itself leads to a conflict with what? The articles of faith in our profession. Here's an astrophysicist saying we have articles of faith in our profession. We have to believe things that we can't prove. We have to go strictly on faith. Okay? So as I tell my students all the time, a lot of this scientific disagreement becomes not scientific disagreements. It comes down to religious disagreements. Okay? So when they say we do bad science, literally the reverse is true. Okay. Now we have faith. They have faith in what they can't see or prove. We have a universe. We used to have nothing. So how did that something come out of nothing? We have an explanation for it. They don't. Now, they don't have any evidence to go based on, I think I told you about directed panspermia, Dawkins saying aliens see the life on the earth, right? And all that with no evidence whatsoever. Uh, these three theories have no evidence whatsoever. What does our Bible say about our faith? It's the evidence of things not seen, right? 
saying there's evidence, even though you can't see what we're talking about, there, God left evidence for us to follow, and that's what we're following. Okay. So he, Jastrow finishes by saying, it turns out that scientists behave the way the rest of us do when our beliefs are in conflict with the evidence. We become irritated. We pretend the conflict doesn't exist, or we paper it over with meaningless phrases. The meaningless phrases he's talking about is Richard Dawkins calling aliens directed panspermia. Because when he says directed panspermia, people go, that sounds smart enough to me. But if they ask what it means, he would say, well, aliens planted life on the earth is what we're going with there. It's like um, Stephen Jay Gould, uh, a paleontologist, when he's talking about his belief that when he's trying to explain why there's no missing links in the fossil record, he, he says, well, maybe I think life just jumped, the slow, gradual process jumped, and life uh, changes happened really, really quickly. That's why we don't see it in the fossil record. That's against everything Charles Darwin said, and there's no evidence for that. We've never seen life just change quickly into another species. And he calls that punctuated equilibria. Because if, if, if somebody tells you about punctuated equilibria, you go, that's a lot of syllables, so it's probably true. <laughs> right? But then when you say, what is it? And I'll go, well, slow evolution, but when a reptile became a bird, it happened like super quick. That's why you don't see any between the fossils. And that's okay. the guy, that, that, he wrote the book, Punctuated Equilibria, Stephen Jay Gould. Okay, Gould, and he said himself, it was like they appeared all at once, fully formed. Yes. He even admitted. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that's Cambrian explosion and uh, sudden appearance in stasis. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll take questions at the end only because nobody on the thing can hear the questions, so I have to repeat them all the time. Okay, very good. All right. So when when he when uh, Jastro talks about Einstein was irritated at his own discovery proving the beginning of the universe. He says that irritation is curiously emotional language for a discussion on mathematical formulas. I suppose that the idea of a beginning in time annoyed Einstein because of its theological implications. Okay, so I, I remind the kids about their math classes. It said, "You ever see your teacher do this long division problem? When they get she gets the answer, she gets all irritated at it. Like I can't believe it's twelve. Right? No, it's nothing to be emotional about these answers. Right? Unless it goes against your religion." Right? That's what's irritating them, is it goes against their atheism. So now Jastra says this there is a kind of religion in science. Like every effect has a must have its cause, there is no first cause. This religious faith of the scientists is violated by the discovery that the world had a beginning under conditions which the known laws of physics are not valid. And as a product of forces or circumstances we cannot discover. So he's talking about like the second law of thermodynamics. Says everything goes from a state of order to a state of chaos over time. Well, the Big Bang was this massive state of chaos that became total order. Absolutely the opposite of the second law of thermodynamics. So, what is a violation of a natural law like that? It's called the miracle. Okay, so he's saying they paint himself in a corner because they're discovering miracles happen and they have no miracle worker to point to. So, when that happens, scientists has lost control, and if he really examined the implications, he'd be traumatized. As usual, when faced with trauma, the mind reacts by ignoring the implications, and science is known as refusing to speculate, so I refuse to speculate on that, or trivializing the origin of the world by calling it the Big Bang as if the universe were a firecracker. He says, you want to know why they call it the Big Bang Theory? Because it doesn't sound like creationism. They should just be calling it creationism, but they call it the Big Bang because it, it threw me. I know when I first became a Christian, I thought the Big Bang was my enemy. I thought... There's Genesis 1 that I believe. There's a Big Bang that I can't believe that. But thankfully, I discovered that Big Bang 
is Einstein's discovery kind of of the math behind, and God said, let there be light. So God's not going to say to Moses, hey, e equals mc squared and give him all these math equations right now. He's just going to say, and I said, let there be light, and there was light, right? So that's the way to tell the story that Einstein got the math behind the story. That's what we discovered, okay? All right. So the evidence shows clearly that time, space, and matter had a beginning. It best demands a cause for it. The cause must be something or someone outside of time, space, and matter. It must be an eternal cause. They'll use meaningless phrases and they'll refuse to speculate. It's how they avoid these conclusions. It's a matter of their will, not of their mind. The evidence is objective. The scientists are not objective. All right. So in 2003, the Wilkinson Microwave Anastropy Probe, you can actually look this up online. You can get this W map online, and it's the radiation from the Big Bang that you're going to be looking at. And it's in all these different color codes. The yellows and the reds are the hot spots. The bluer are the cold, colder spots that will soon be galaxies. Well, in 2003, they took pictures 35 times sharper than the Kobe satellite took of the radiation ripples. And so George Will of NASA... He said something pretty funny here. He says, because all the evidence NASA keeps getting on the origin of the universe is so supportive of Genesis, he said, I'm afraid the ACLU or the People for the American Way or some similar faction of litigious secularism is going to file lawsuits against NASA charging that the Hubble Space Telescope unconstitutionally <laughs> gives comfort to the religiously inclined. He says, I'm afraid we're going to get sued because everything we come up with is pointing to the Bible. And they're going to say, hey, separation of church and state, you can't keep proving the Bible on us like this. All right. All right. So what if some future discovery disproved the Big Bang? Well, here's four things to know. One, the second law of thermodynamics does not allow the universe to be eternal. It's running out of usable energy. It cannot come from eternal source, period. Two, Einstein's theory of relativity requires a beginning for all time, space, and matter. We know time had a beginning. We know space had a beginning. We know matter had a beginning scientifically now. And then we have radioactive elements like uranium still in the world today. Uranium decays into lead. Well, it didn't all decay into lead yet. There's still uranium, which means the world ain't that old. Okay? Otherwise, all the uranium would be gone. And then there's the Kalam cosmological argument. You're asking, what is that? Well... There's complicated ways to put it. I'm going to give you a, a brief synopsis of the Kalam cosmological argument. It simply says this. It's kind of a philosophical argument. It says this. If the universe were eternal, then how many days are in our universe's past? An infinite amount of days, right, would be in our past. Is it possible to complete an infinite set of anything? But to arrive at today, we would have had to have completed an infinite amount of days in the past. To arrive at today, that's an impossible thing to do. Okay, so there's just no philosophical sense coming out of an eternal universe. Okay, all right. Okay, so what I'm going to do now is because we're going to switch gears here and go to the teleological argument, I'm going to see if you have any questions on the cosmological argument or the three theories that try to overcome it. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, they don't have a cause for how it actually came out of nothing. And you got to remember that point of singularity contains 
everything in it. Everything you've ever seen has come from that point of singularity. Okay, so how do they explain where that came from? And as somebody put it, I don't know if I'll get this exactly right, but they said um, basically the atheist view is in the beginning there was nothing and then it exploded into everything. Okay, yeah. All right. Any other questions? All right. I really like the teleological argument. I like looking at the fine tuning in the universe because it's a picture of the tremendous amount of attention and care God gave in creating a world that we can actually live in and how delicate the balance of all of that is that when you read the verse that Jesus upholds all things by the strength of his power you realize he's upholding a lot by the strength of his power life is balanced on the rate at a razor's edge here so let's get into this teleological argument so as I said before these arguments have premises and if you prove the premises to be true, the conclusion follows. Okay, so the first premise of the teleological argument is that every design had a designer. Okay, now that's I'm pretty much a given, and I'll, I'll say it to you this way. So if um, this afternoon you looked up in the sky and you read the words "drink Coke," would you say what an amazing cloud formation that is? <laughs> no, you would know it's a skywriter, wouldn't you? Okay, why? Because those nine letters, nine, is too much specified complex information for you to ever believe it was accidental. So when we talk about the billions and trillions of, of um, codes inside your DNA that form your eyebrows and your toenails and your heart and the size of it and the, the, the place it's gonna go in your body and your DNA is not only creating all these blueprints of your body, but it's actually creating the building materials, right? Kids that aren't born yet don't have hearts yet, but they need the building materials for that. Something's gotta make a heart, something's gotta make capillaries, Somebody's, something's gotta make nails and hair and everything in the body. And your DNA is not just the information to place that stuff where it goes, but it has to build it. It's, an, it's, it's massively complex, specified information that the Darwinist says, you know, we're so lucky. It's amazing. Okay, now, um, so now the, the teleological uh, argument is proven by what's called the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle, anthropic, comes from the Greek word anthropos, which is our word for mankind. So the anthropic principle is saying, here's a bunch of massively difficult odds to, to, to overcome that all came true for mankind to be able to live on this earth. Okay, so uh, let's go through that. Okay. Yeah, the slide should have came later, but let's do it now. So the anthropic principle leaves no plausible explanation for the design of the universe other than there being a cosmic designer for it. Atheists' only responses are presenting the impossible. As physicist Paul Davies will conclude, one may find it easier to believe in an infinite array of universes than an infinite deity. But such a belief must rest on faith rather than observation. Okay, so they're going to, uh, they bring up the multiverse as an answer to this. But wait, no wonder why that's out of order. I'm at the very end of the presentation. How did that happen? All right. Here we go. I must have been hitting the button. Was I flipping through slides? Well, I don't know. Okay, I don't know what happened. All right, teleological argument. Every design had a designer. The universe has highly complex design. 
Therefore, the universe had to have a designer. Let's look at this. Sir Isaac Newton, he was a pretty good scientist, right? Okay. He said this. The most, this most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets can only proceed from the council and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. Okay. So I cite Isaiah 45, 18 for this. And thank goodness, because one of you said, I hope you're citing scripture, maybe even Isaiah. I was like, sure. There it is. 45.18 says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it, he established it, and did not create it as a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. Okay, You've seen pictures of Mars, right? Does that look like it was expecting mankind to be on it? Or the moon? Those are our nearest neighbors, right? And our satellites have seen billions and billions of galaxies and stars and planets. We've seen zero evidence of life. Yet you can just look in the air and you'll see the air teeming with life from birds. You can look underwater. You'll see a whole other planet like of life everywhere. You look on the land, there's life everywhere. How come everything for life is all over this planet, whether it's plants or animals or humans or whatever. It's all over our planet. It's nowhere else in the whole universe that we've ever seen. Just here. Isaiah 45, 18 said, God created the earth to be inhabited. All right. Now, William Paley is famous for his watchmaker analogy. He says, if you're walking in the woods, you find a diamond-studded Rolex watch. What do you suppose caused that watch? The wind and the rain? Erosion? Or some combination of natural forces? Of course not. You would know that there was intelligence behind the cause of that watch. So if a watch demands intelligence for its creation, how much more life? Things that are alive and far more complex than a watch. Okay. If you went to Mount Rushmore, how would you feel if somebody next to you goes, look at the wind and the rain and the erosion created? <laughs> now, those faces tell you there was intelligence behind the design of those faces, even though they're made of stone, right? Okay, imagine if they had eyes that could see how much more complex that would be. A mouth that could speak, how much more complex that would be. All right. So the anthropic principle speaks of highly precise and interdependent environmental conditions that make up our universe. Each condition is known as an, as an anthropic constant. Anthropic means human or pertaining to man. Each constant meets a required precision to allow for the possibility of life to happen. Okay, so I've got a bunch of them listed. We'll go over them really quick just so you get the idea. Oxygen levels have to be 21% of the atmosphere. They can't be more or less. If we were higher, spontaneous fires would destroy our planet. If we were lower, we'd all suffocate. It has to be what it is, but there's no life. Now, 21%. So at a zero to 100%, it's got to be 21. Guess what it is? Thank goodness. All right. Second one, atmospheric transparency. Do you know I used to kid around about this before I was even really a Christian? I was just like, how fortunate that air is see-through. Imagine if it wasn't see-through. That'd be a real problem. You know? And I was just kidding around about it. It turns out to be an anthropic constant. If our atmosphere were less transparent, not enough solar radiation would reach our surface. If it were more transparent, there'd be far too much radiation to survive. This constant goes for the precise levels of nitrogen and the ozone as well. The moon-earth gravitational interaction is perfect for the tidal wave, the tidals, the tides that we have. Can't have too much tidal activity, can't have too few. Tidal activity is necessary for stirring up the oceans and the food sources for, for sea life and so forth and uh, to not flood our planet and so on. Carbon dioxide levels got to be perfect. 
Our plants would not maintain their photosynthesis. We'd all suffocate. If we were greater, there'd be a runaway gas house effect, and we'd all burn up. Carbon dioxide has to be what it is. Gravity. Okay, according to Jeffrey's Weiring, research physicist at UCLA, if gravitational force were altered by, okay, so if that first zero was if that if that first zero was a one, that would be by ten percent. The second zero was a one, it'd be by one percent. This is a major fraction of one percent. It's thirty-eight zeros there. I've counted them; they're there. Okay, it's thirty-eight zeros and then a one. Okay, so if gravitational force were altered by one part in 10 to the 38th power, okay, a, 10, a one with 38 zeros after it, then our sun would not exist, neither would we. See how fortunate we are there? Life is balanced on a razor's edge. Okay, additional constants, I just quickly list the centrifugal force of the Earth has to be what it is. If the universe expansion rate was different by one in a billion, Slower or faster, we wouldn't have life here. Any variation in speed of light and other constants would alter life and would be, prohibit life. Vapor levels were greater, greenhouse effect would happen. Jupiter's orbit has to be precise so that its gravity vacuums up space material that would otherwise strike the Earth like comets and asteroids. Um, 23 and a half degree tilt of the Earth has to be just right for our climate. Um, 120, Dr. He Ross calculated the 122 constants, which are still growing. There's constants being added to that. And he said, of these 122 constants all coming true to allow for life on the planet, he did the math, and it came out to 1 times 10 to the 138th power, a 1 with 138 zeros after it. Okay? Now, the estimated number of molecules in the universe is only between 1 times 10 to the 70th and 80th powers. This is almost double the odds, uh, the number of the amount of estimated number of molecules in the universe. Okay, there's only one chance in all of that for these constants to come true, and they did. Okay, listen, if the odds were ten to one, then most likely there'd be no life on the Earth. Ten to one. If it was three to one, most likely there'd be no life on the Earth. But this is one times ten to the 138th power to one, and it happened. And honestly, the atheist answer is, that's why we're here talking about it now, because it happened. Okay? Without it's trying to say this is most ridiculous number. So I've heard it said, not about these 138 constants, 122 constants, but something even smaller than that. They said it would be like somebody winning the lottery from birth to 18 every single day. For 18 years, 365 times a year. Okay? So Arnold Penzias, he, he was the co-discoverer of the cosmic radiation background. He says, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. So he said, see, the supernatural is an absurd accident. And that's very light on saints and absurd accidents. Ed Harrison, a cosmologist, said, here is the cosmological proof of the existence of God. Hear that? Cosmological proof of the existence of God. The design argument of Paley, updated and refurbished. The fine-tuning of the universe proves prima facie evidence of deistic design. All science 
And they're saying it's proving God had to do this. So how do atheists respond? Some concede. Astronomer Fred Hoyle, responding to the anthropic principle, said, okay, so this is um, an atheist responding. He says, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics, as well as chemistry and biology, and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about nature. Darwinian evolution is about nothing but blind forces. Here they're saying there's no longer any reason to talk about blind forces, speaking about nature. Others, while admitting design, chalk it up to chance. So they propose the multiverse theory. Did I cover the multiverse theory last week? Yep, okay. So we, I gave the problems of that multiverse theory, so we can move through there. All right, so let's restate the teleological argument. Every design had a designer. Like I said, you wouldn't believe drink coke. And that little bit of information that's in the sky came about by accident. You know intelligence had to be behind that. So we know that had to be designed by a designer, that that's not an accident. We know Mount Rushmore is not an accident because of the design. So we agree every design needs a designer. And then as verified by the anthropic principle, we know beyond a reasonable doubt that the universe is indeed designed. So therefore, the universe had a designer. Now, that's the slide I started on, and it's way back here near the end. So I don't know how I did that. All right. Now, what do we got here? 20 minutes. All right, here's what I want to do. This is my favorite quote of anything I teach. Ron Carlson, this is, as we get into the biology of Darwinian evolution, um, Ron Carlson said, in grammar school, they taught me that a frog turning into a prince was a fairy tale. At the university, they taught me that a frog turning into a prince was a fact. Because of Darwinian evolution. All right. Okay, I really thought I'd get more laughs from that one, but whatever. All right. That's a great, great quote, isn't it? It's a great, great quote. Okay. All right. So now, we're going to talk about, you heard me say these words a couple times tonight. Specified complex information. So it's not just a lot of information that becomes complex, it's specified. Meaning, there's information in our DNA that says, I'm going to build eyebrows and I'm gonna put them over people's eyes. Okay, it's gonna be made of short hair type of thing. I'm gonna make elbows, and I'm gonna make it where they can swing their arm back and forth. It's very complex and specified information, much more than an architect's blueprint. Because an architect's blueprint cannot create the building materials for the house, can it? It simply can say where things are gonna go, maybe what size and shape they are. But it can't do anything about producing that. Okay, your DNA does it all. There's absolutely everything on that. All right, now, how many of you folks remember Carl Sagan, probably from the 70s and 80s? He had a show called Cosmos, right? He had a show called Cosmos. Great show for looking at the universe, especially back then. It was really wonderful stuff. He was kind of yesterday's Neil deGrasse Tyson of today. Okay, atheists, astronomers doing a lot on TV. Now Carl Sagan wrote a book called Contact. First of all, in his show Cosmos, he would start every program with this saying, and tell me what you think he was trying to accomplish with this opening. You'll probably remember it if you watch the show. The show would start with his voice saying, the universe is all there ever was, all there is, and all there ever will be. He's mocking God, who said, I'm the God who was, who is, and is to come. And he's saying, it ain't God, 
Your God is the universe. It's all there ever was and is and ever will be. Okay, so he's trying to overcome the Christian argument right at the very beginning of the show. Now, he wrote a book called Contact. And a movie was made uh, based on that book. And that movie was called Contact. It starred Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey and a bunch of other people. And um, in that movie, which I'm going to show you a clip of this now, Jodie Foster is an astrophysicist. And she's got outside of this lab here, she's got all sorts of antenna, huge antennas just lined up, pointing out into space, searching for life. They're looking for any signs of life out there whatsoever. Okay, And so all this equipment in her lab here is just set to hear any kind of sound or anything that seems like it would come from intelligence. So what I want you to pay attention to in this clip is what standard do they use to regard something as having to come from intelligence? Okay, ready? All right. Talk to me, guys. Partially polarized set of moving pulses, amplitude modulated. Unlocked. Systems check out signal across the board. What's the frequency? 4.4623 gigahertz. Hydrogen times pi. Told you. Strong sucker, too. I got it! I got it! I got it! I'm patched in! Alright, let me hear it. See that? Make me a liar, fish. Uh, could be AWACS out of Kirtland jamming us, but I'm doubting it. Alright, let's see if Fudd's reading it too. Willie, patch it back and give me the off axis. Are we recording? Never stopped. Thank you, Elmer. AWACS status is negative. Uh, what about White Sands? On this frequency? No. I'm gonna punch up the darks. How's this playing tonight, guys? Come on. All right. Norad's not tracking any snoops in this vector. Shuttle Endeavor's in sleep mode. Okay, point source confirmed. Whatever it is, it ain't local. Position? I checked into parometry somewhere in Lyra, I think. Uh, Vega? Yeah, Bay. It's only 26 light years away. Hey, what's the peak intensity? Coming up. Vega. Vega, man, I scanned it a bunch of times at Arecibo. It was negative results, always. Got it. Reading over 100 jet skis. Jesus. I pick it up on my... Restarting. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Those are numbers. That was a three. The one before it was a two. Um, base 10 numbers. Just start counting now. That's see how far we can get. One. Seven. Seven. Those are primes. 
two, three, five, seven. Those are all prime numbers. And I said, no way, that's a natural phenomenon. Holy okay, shit. Okay, let's just calm down and pull up the star file on Vega. It doesn't make any sense. The system is too Zero young, so it can't have a planetary system, let alone life, let alone the creation of the Well, maybe, maybe they didn't even go up there. Maybe they're just visiting. I don't know. Okay, so spacecraft? No, this system is full of debris. It would get clobbered. Well, not if they used their laser blasters and photon torpedoes. That's not funny, Willie. Well, how else are we going to explain it's it? That's what you're talking about, about Willie's right. If, if we go public with this and we're wrong, that's it. It's, it's over. We're cooked. God, I wish Kent was here. Whatever the signal is, we better do something soon. Vega's going to set. That position is confirmed. We've got 4.4623 gigahertz. Confirmed. We've got 112 Janskis. All right, do you have a source location yet? We put it right smack in the middle. Vega. Okay, thanks, Ian. Just keep tracking, and we'll get back to you. Yeah, righto. Okay, 101. The pulse sequence through every prime number between 2 and 101. Who are we going to call now? Everybody. Come here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Carl Sagan believed that a string of prime numbers indicated intelligence. Yet the first one-celled life, which would be the equivalent of a have have the equivalent of information of a thousand encyclopedias, he would believe to be due to randomness. Um, this is from this quote is from his book Contact. He said the information contents of the human brain expressed not from contact it's just from it's just this is a quote from Carl Sagan the information content of the human brain expressed in bits is probably comparable to the total number of connections among the neurons about a hundred trillion bits if written in English say that information would fill some 20 million volumes as many as the world's largest libraries the equivalent of 20 million books is inside the heads of every one of us the brain is a very big place in a very small space. The neurochemistry of the brain is astonishingly busy. The circuitry of a machine were wonderful than any devised by humans. Now I'll say that was an accident, but if you ever get a series of prime numbers, that's got to be intelligence. Okay. So if intelligent human beings cannot create anything close to a human brain, why should we expect non-intelligent natural laws to do so? In fact, when archaeologists find an arrowhead, they know it must have been designed, even though they've never seen that designer. No archaeologist digs up an arrowhead and go, nice rock formation this thing is. <laughs> they know by the shape of an arrowhead that there was some intelligence that made that arrowhead. So those simplest things get credited with intelligence, and these most complex things are attributed to accidents. Okay? SETI stands for Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. The whole basis for the SETI program is that a signal from outer space carrying specific information must have an intelligent source. Yet the materialistic bias of many evolutionists means that they reject an intelligent source for the literally encyclopedic information in every living cell that you have. 
Alright, so what about new life form? <coughs> the biggest problem for Darwinists is overcoming the impossibility of going from non-living chemicals to the first cell. So just like I said, what has to be true of the cause of, of the universe? Well, because life is in this universe, the cause has to be greater than the life in the universe, right? It has to be alive. Something alive has to create us because nothing non-living can create something living. Rocks don't create living things and so forth. Now, the concept of macroevolution cannot even begin its first step without some sort of pre-existing life to start it. They don't have a source for non-living chemicals, much less an explanation of how they could possibly come to life. So they can't explain how the chemicals got here. So like you said, they can't explain the, um, the um, point of singularity. They can't explain the existence of that. They can't explain the first chemicals. They can't explain how those chemicals became living things. So macroevolution, some people call it molecules to man, how molecules became man. Uh, Norman Geisler calls it from the goo to you via the zoo. <laughs> So now, uh, so we're talking about the difference between microevolution and macroevolution. Okay, I don't think I brought this up in the first week, did I? This is the first time you've heard of it? No, you talked about it. I did talk about it? Okay. All right, let me see if there's, all right, let me see what I got here. All right, so what I want to do is this. So if I did talk about it, I told you that microevolution is absolutely true, right? That's adaptation, but that, that adaptation within a species never allows that species to become anything else. So now I'm going to give you actually five lines of science that forbid macroevolution from ever happening at the biological level. Okay, uh, These are things that Darwin would never have had access to. He could not have known the things that you're about to see. And because Darwin made statements like this, Charles Darwin said that if it could ever be shown that slow gradual change over time does not account for new life forms that my theory is over. This is going to do that. He said about the fossil record and the lack of in between species. He said that, you know, if we ever get a complete fossil record, remember they had nothing much more than shovels to find fossils with. Now we have cranes, machines, and all sorts of things. We have a complete fossil record now. He said, if we ever get a complete fossil record and it doesn't show slow gradual change over millions of years in the fossil record, then my theory is wrong. That's exactly what we have now, a complete fossil record that shows no slow, gradual change over millions of years. It'd be hard to believe Charles Darwin would be a Darwinist if you were alive today. I think he'd be saying, what are you guys doing here? Okay. So the first line of science I'm going to give you is called genetic limits. Okay, Your genes are limited to the type of species you are. Genetic limits are built into the basic types of animals. <clears throat> Though breeders can create different types of dogs, they cannot create something other than a dog. And all their breeding requires intelligence to boot. In other words, even if people use the argument of, we put this animal with this animal, they'll say lion and tiger, you get a liger, right? But it's still in the, the family of feline or whatever the cat family is there, okay? It's still in there. Plus, how'd you get the liger? It wasn't natural. You intelligently bred them together. Remember, anything that has intelligence in the experiment does not prove evolution because what you're trying to prove is how not intelligence could do it. So as soon as you get a scientist doing it, it's, it's over. They're typically sterile, too. They can't reproduce. Yeah. Yeah, they, so they don't advance. They're not an advanced being. They're actually less than a lion or a tiger. They can't reproduce. Yeah. And, and people look at the fruit fly. that they, they, They'll make different fruit flies. They said, we created something bigger because now they got two sets of wings instead of one. 
So they're evolving, but guess what? The, the sets of wings lock into each other and they can't fly and they die. So it's a terrible design, okay? All right, directional change in living things by natural selection without intelligence has never been observed. Directional change with intelligence hits genetic limits. Now, Norman Geisler debated a guy named Dr. Kurtz, and Dr. Kurtz made this statement when Norman Geisler was presenting the argument about genetic limits, that genetically we're limited to the type of creature we are. He said, well, look at a jet airplane. And Geisler said, well, what about a jet airplane? He said, well, they used to be the Wright brothers airplane. Look how that evolved. And he said, well, first of all, it's not a living thing. Second of all, do you know how much intelligence it took to get from a Wright Brothers plane to a jet airplane? Massive amounts of intelligence to do that. Okay, so it's amazing how even somebody that was qualified to debate about this, the best thing to come up with is for, for macroevolution is look at look what happened to the airplanes. Okay. Alright, so genetic limits, even in breeding, you can't get a new creature out of it, and when you get a combination of a lion and a tiger or something like that, it actually ends up worse than the lion and the tiger was. Cyclical change. Okay, this is what happened with Charles Darwin on the Galapagos Islands when studying the finch. He would see changes in their beak structures. And he said, if I can observe a change in the beak of the finch in the little time that I'm observing them, then imagine if I gave that change millions of years, the finch would become something other than a finch, right? But what he wasn't aware of is what we call cyclical change. In other words, it's a part of adaptation. So these finches that in rainy weather when food is abundant, their beaks end up short and fat because they don't have to dig through rocks for their food. And if they mate during that time, they're going to produce short, fat, beaked finches. In dry seasons when they mate, their, their beaks get thinner and thinned out a little bit to dig through crevices in the rock. And if they mate then, they're going to give birth to longer beak uh, finches. So they're going through cycles, okay? So the beaks are going fat, thin, fat, thin, but nothing else on the finch is changing. It's never becoming anything else but a finch. It's just adapting to its environment. Okay, you adapt to your environment every time you're exposed to the sun too long because your skin's gonna get darker, isn't it? You're adapting. If you have short-haired dog and you move to Siberia, in a few generations, the hair is gonna get a lot thicker on these dogs because they're adapting. But you're not to think that it's becoming a bear or something like that. <laughs> Okay, it's just adapting to its environment. So you have genetic limits, you have cyclical change, you have irreducible complexity. Now here's what this is. Irreducible complexity states that if you have a complex system with many parts, an irreducibly complex system is one where if you removed even one of those parts, the whole thing would die. It's irreducibly complex. You cannot reduce it and it still work. It's like your cardiovascular system. Can you take your veins out of that? It's, you still live? or remove the heart and you still live. It's irreducibly complex. You need a heart, you need arteries, you need capillaries, you need blood. You need it all or none of it's worth anything, correct? It's irreducibly complex. Oftentimes, when people teach irreducible complexity, they'll use a mousetrap as an example. They'll say with a mousetrap, you have a base, a wooden base. You've got a spring, you've got a lever, okay? You've got a uh, trigger and you've got bait. You can't catch a mouse with four of those. You need all five, right? It's irreducibly complex. Even though it's simple, it's still irreducibly complex in how it's made. Your cells, each one of your cells is irreducibly complex. 
They're highly complex systems. They're like little cities of activity happening all the time. They actually have transportation modes. They have building centers. They have a, all, all, it's like a mini factory going on in each and every one of your cells. And they, to, to, to move around the cell, there's a little flagellum. It looks like a motor boat's motor, just spinning around, steering things around. It's the simplest part of the cell. And if that flagellum were gone, the whole cell would die. If any part of that cell was gone, it would all die. It's irreducibly complex. Okay? So Charles Darwin said, if it could be demonstrated that if any complex organ existed, which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Well, irreducible complex systems like a cell, which he couldn't have studied back then, um, is irreducibly complex. It could not survive um, Darwinian evolution. Okay? There are many organs, systems, and processes in life that are irreducibly complex. All living things are filled with molecular machines that perform the numerous functions of life that are irreducibly complex. This means that all the parts of each machine must be completely formed in their right places, in the right sizes, in operating order at the same time for that machine to function. Any, any intermediary status of these machines would not function. Okay? Um, you have to come into existence with your full body having your heart, your liver, your kidneys. They can grow, but they got to be there from the beginning. You can't take time to evolve these things. The first life cannot evolve these things. To, to live, you have to have these systems in place. Each human cell, there's about three million pairs of these letters of the A, T, C, and G of DNA. Our bodies have trillions of cells and make millions of new ones every second. And each one of them is irreducibly complex and contains irreducibly complex subsystems. Cannot come about by Darwinian evolution. So Michael Behe, who wrote the <clears throat> incredible book, Darwin's Black Box, showing all the ways which Darwinian evolution is impossible, he said the idea of Darwinian molecular evolution is not based on science. There is no publication in the scientific literature. Listen to this. There's no publication in the scientific literature, in journals or books, that describes how molecular evolution of any real complex biochemical system either did occur or even might have occurred. There are assertions that such evolution occurred, but absolutely none are supported by pertinent experiments or calculations. Since there is no authority to base claims of knowledge, it can truly be said that the assertion of Darwinian molecular evolution is merely bluster. There's not one article showing here's macroevolution uh, happening. The results of these cumulative effects to investigate the cell, to investigate life at the molecular level, is a loud, clear, piercing cry of design. The result is so unambiguous and so significant that it must be ranked as one of the greatest achievements in the history of science. This discovery rivals those of Newton and Einstein. All right. Um, I'm going to quickly do these last two just so we don't leave in midstream. Non-viability transfer. So you had genetic limits, you had cyclical change, you had irreducible complexity. Now you have non-viability of transitional forms. Simply says this: If it takes millions of years for a reptile to become a bird, in those millions of years, the reptile is slowly losing its reptilian features of speed, agility, ability to hide, and all that before it could ever form wings and actually take flight. In those millions of years that it's not quite a reptile, not quite a bird, it easily goes extinct from its prey. 
There's no way to survive that time period as it's transitioning forms. It's not, they're non-viable. They will go extinct, okay? So, so just the fact that it takes so long and the reptile needs to be fully reptilian to survive its prey and a bird needs to be fully a bird to survive its prey and it's neither quite for a long period of time they would go extinct, all forms would go extinct during that time is the idea, okay? And the last thing is molecular isolation. So this is where people say, well, look at chimpanzees. We're 85 to 95% similar DNA as a chimp. And that's true. And we're actually more similar to frogs, but nobody says we came from frogs because it's not believable, right? We don't look anything like a frog, even though it's closer in DNA than the chimp. But here's how DNA works. It's only four letters, A, T, C, and G. Now, chimps and humans live in the same biosphere, right? We breathe the same oxygen. We walk across the same land, right? So we're going to need limbs that can traverse the land. We're going to need respiratory systems that breathe in the air and, and convert it to whatever it's got to go to and all that. So there's got to be similarities in the DNA to create beings that can live in this biosphere together. It's got to be the, largely the same. But slight modifications in DNA make huge differences. So the, the similarity is not that impressive. So look at these two statements. Statement one, Charles Darwin is a god. Second statement, Charles Darwin is a dog. Those statements are over 90% identical with two massively different results. That's how DNA works. Okay? That's how DNA works. Okay? So it's not significant when they say we're DNA is so much like a chimp. Yeah, because they're breathing just like we are. They're walking just like we are. You know, there's similarities that require DNA to have some similarities. But tiny variations in DNA make massively big differences. All right, now... Let me see what we got here. Biochemist Michael Denton said this, at a molecular level, there's no trace of the evolutionary transition from fish. This is what Darwin said. It goes from fish, and then as they crawl out of the water, they're amphibians, then become reptiles, and become mammals. He says there's no trace of that evolutionary transition at the molecular level. So amphibia, you can see as the second thing on the list, always traditionally considered to be intermediate between fish and other terrestrial vertebrates, are molecular terms as far from fish as any group of reptiles or mammals. So those are well acquainted with the traditional picture of vertebrae evolution. The results is astonishing. He's saying, listen, you're supposed to go from, I'm just going this thing shine down here. But to go from fish should be as closer to amphibian than they are to reptiles, right? On this chain. But there's no significant difference between fish and amphibia and reptiles and fish. Just not significant difference. It's not looking like it's evolving this way. It just looks like they coexist in different forms. That's it. Okay. All right. So to conclude this, molecular isolation. So even though all organisms share a common genetic code with varying degrees of closeness, that code has ordered the amino acids and proteins in such a way that the basic types are in molecular isolation from one another. There are no Darwinian transitions. There's only distinct molecular gaps. Darwinists cannot explain the presence of these molecular gaps by natural selection. So Richard Lewinton says this, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. So they're committed to materialism, so they overlook so much of the evidence 
because they're committed to the material world or the natural world explaining everything without God. Okay. Um, last quote. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. We cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So no matter how absurd, no matter how contrary to the evidence, you got to hold on to evolution because we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. So there's your five lines of science. Genetic limits, cyclical change, irreducible complexity, the non-viability of transitional forms, and molecular isolation. So we'll probably hit this fossil record uh, next week because that'll be our last week together. Uh, so I think we're going to conclude with that since I already showed you that slide and got you interested. Um, we'll follow through with that. All right. Now, there are a lot of big words I was reading quickly because it says 808 on that clock. And I know that's eight minutes more than you bargained for. Mm. So uh, any questions before we uh, call it a night? Wow, not like this group at all. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, this irreducible complexity. It's kind of like synergy, isn't it? How? Well, it says you need the parts, all the parts to, to form and make something function. Synergy, well, at least in medicine, is like the two effects of one medicine, two medicines are greater than the effect of one. So they work together to make a greater effect. In irreducible complexity, you have many parts creating an effect. Well, yeah. So without the synergy in medicine, you'd have a less effective medicine. But with, without the with with the complexity of cells and things like that, it's not that they'll be less effective; they'll die. Yeah. So it's a little more extreme than synergism, although there's similarities there. Yeah. All right. Yes, sir. You get into uh, fossils next week. Will you tell us science will tell us the Earth is two billion years old, two billion year old. Bible will tell us starting from Adam, eight thousand years. We get into that. I mean, there's got to be leverage in there to believe in something old. Okay. All right. So this is a can. It's filled with worms, and you just opened it. Well, I can give you I can give you a summary of the research of a lady named Dr. Sarah Salviander who, uh, as an atheist astrophysicist, started using the cosmic radiation background as a clock. You know, you can use light as a clock because it has waves, and those waves serve as like second hands. So she was trying to determine the age of the universe to, based on this cosmic radiation background. And her findings turned her into a Christian, where now she calls herself an astrophysicist and a Christian apologist. Okay? So, um, I'll give you the very much Reader's Digest version of her research, which which leads me, when people say, are you young Earth or old Earth, I always say yes, okay, based on her findings, okay. It's another joke I thought would be loud. <laughs> <laughs> what a crowd you guys are. <laughs> <laughs>
But either either one, it's not an acid test for orthodoxy. You could there's many old age Church Christians, but see some Christians cling to the six thousand year model. Well, here's what she said because it'll it'll bring both of those ideas together. So she's using this light and energy from the from the Big Bang radiation background to try to come up with the age of the universe, where the non-theist would say it's like 14 and a half billion years and the theist would would prefer something much younger with for a lot of good reasons but um what she found was this it's it's pretty much agreed that time it's einstein absolutely proved that time is relative it's relative to things like velocity and gravity so in highly heavy gravity areas time slows down in high velocity situations time slows down to where einstein said if you got into a spaceship traveling at the speed of light and you, you went away for an hour at the speed of light, came back an hour later, the people on the earth would be like 60, 70 years older and you'd be one hour older, okay? Because time for you is going way slower than for people on the earth at that speed, okay? So um, Sarah Salviander took all these dynamics into account that at the Big Bang, Time was going way faster because there's no gravity, because there's no galaxies or stars or anything to create gravity. So it's agreed, according to her, it's agreed upon that at the Big Bang, time was going about a trillion times faster than it is right now. A trillion times faster. And then as the radiation cools and galaxies form and gravity kicks in, it starts slowing down. And the more that these galaxies form, the more it slows down and the more it slows down. Now, her calculations, <clears throat> say, okay, so based on how we know how fast time is going here on the Earth, that we measure time by the 14.5 billion year old universe. But if you account for how fast it was going and the rate that it slowed down to get to today, she says it looks like a, like a 100,000 year old universe. And it dawned on her that the theists and the atheists are saying the same thing. They're just using different clocks. Mm -hmm. So when the atheist says 14.5 billion years, it's because they're only going by how fast time is going right now. But if you do all the math and calculate how fast it was going up until now, that would only take about 100,000 years compared to the 14.5 billion years. That made, that brought her to faith. She so saw how this was the biblical picture uh, in our Bibles that she now she's a Christian apologist about it. Okay, So it just depends on what clock you're using. If you're using the adjustable clock that takes into account how much faster time went, you get a very young universe. If you don't, you only go by how fast our clocks are going now, you get a very old universe. So that brings up issues of carbon dating and all of that stuff, but um, that will likely come up in our fossil talk next week. Okay, yes? Okay, so when gravity, the law of relativity, the, the higher the gravity pole is, the slower time goes. So on Pluto, it's it could be, which horribly they may not plan anymore. I was protesting. It's still a dog in Disney, so that's right. I don't care what the I don't care what the planet. I don't care what the liberal media says it's a planet. But so like a day that's Degrassi Tyson that declassified it. A day on Earth, like if I transported to Pluto and spent a day there and then came back, how many years would have passed on Earth? Like ten years, something like that? Well, the lack of gravity on Pluto, or the very light gravity on Pluto, means it's going faster. It's going faster there. So yeah. I would age, being a day on Pluto, I would age more. Like, like five years to come back. Yeah. 
the earth to be five years older, but to people on earth who are given the day pass. Yeah, it's better than the youth cream people use all the time. <laughs> yeah. So could so could the gravitational pull on Earth have been different before the flood? And time passing at a different. That's going to be the argument that goes into the carbon dating question, because the presence of a global flood changes the carbon dating situation tremendously. So if you if you want to trust the carbon dating methods that we're given today, you can't believe in a global flood. A global flood would have changed the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, which means you can't date using carbon dating uh, accurately. And other proof of that is when Mount St. Helens erupted, remember that, 1980? Um, so several months after that explosion, they were carbon dating rocks that came from that volcano which they know to be three months old. They formed three months ago and they dated to millions of years. They're like, this ain't right. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, dinosaur bones, which they typically give 65 million years to, now we find soft tissue and red blood cells in those, which have half-lives that only allow them to be hundreds of thousands of years old at the most. So we know those dinosaur bones are 65 million years. So there's a lot of things being discovered that are not allowing for these huge amounts of time in the past. So, um, but this gets into things like the gap theory that people have about the Genesis story, which I think has some credibility to it, um, which means there's a huge gap of time between the first verse and the second verse of Genesis, um, which would allow for the angelic world and the fall of Lucifer and all of that before the garden happening and all of that. So, um, I'm not going to have anything to say next week if you keep asking these questions. But, um, yes. I thought the passage of time was related more to the um, rotation. Of the Earth? Well, of everything. I mean, because everything rotates. Well, that's how we keep track of time. Okay. So we say a day is one spin of the Earth. Right. Which is another good point, because we measure a day by the Earth making one rotation, correct? How do we measure a month? Well, the moon taking a lap. Times. Right. Yeah. But the, it's the moon oh, taking yeah. a lap around the Earth, okay. right? How do we measure a year? The Earth taking a lap around the sun, right? Yeah. So how do we measure a week? What's out in space that gives us our week if we get our day, our month, and our year out of it? And the whole world goes by a seven-day week, right? Mm -hmm. So what is that standard that they're using, the whole world agrees upon and uses a seven-day week? It's nothing except for Genesis. The whole world gives credibility to Genesis count the seven-day creation week because we go by seven-day weeks. Same with the word woman. It means from the man. And the whole world calls our females in their own language the from the man one, the female, the woman. Why are they using our terms? Unless there was credibility to it the whole time. Okay? Ben? I want to make a statement. The whole book of Genesis, when Moses wrote it, and writing even a generation of people that said, Creation account wasn't designed to tell us how old the age of the earth is. It was a chiral. It was told. It was told to show us God's plan and, and his 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 chiral. You know his, his godness. You know for man that we were the crown and jewel of that creation. It wasn't to give us a time clock on on the age of the earth. And Christians get involved in these arguments: old age, earth, earth. You know, that's not the argument. The, the argument is this was God's plan and we were the crowning jewel of that plan and it wasn't designed to tell us the age of the earth. And it's really not, a, it's not an essential Christian doctrine. But people will argue to the death 
And, and here's a vehement argument about when you're old age, you're a Christian, or you're not a Christian if you believe that. And there are good theories for both sides. Yeah, if the earth is old, Jesus still died on the cross for your sins. If it's young, he still died on the cross for your sins. And that's where you got to keep your focus. Right? Yes. All right, any other questions? All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this time that you've given us. Thank you for this body of believers, Lord, coming out on a Wednesday night from the comforts of their home to um, ponder you, think about you, to see you and your creation. And we pray that this past hour and change was faithful, Lord, to everything that you've done. And uh, you would help uh, the dedication of this time be used, Lord, for our closeness to you and our being able to see you better, hear you better, follow you better, love you better, uh, that you be glorified in all that we say and do. So help us to stay close to you as we go back out into the city and the traffic and everything else and the alarm clocks tomorrow. Don't let it distract us from who you are and who we are in your eyes, Lord, and what your son did for us. We pray all this in his magnificent name. Amen. Amen. Amen.